Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 108 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday afternoon, it's January 30th, and I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, we, we haven't seen each other all day. It's 3.40 p.m. Uh, you walked into my office and we immediately noticed something somewhat humorous. <laughs> this is one of those moments where it would be better if this was on video. No, uh, it would not be better. You seem to be wearing a button with a blue sweater over it and, uh, hmm. A, a collarless, a collarless sweater over a over a button-down dress shirt with blue jeans, gray socks, and brown boat and light brown boat shoes. What, I, I what, what do you wear? These both as uh, driving shoes because they both have that funny, you know, hard thing on the heel yeah. for when you're driving. So Steve and I are unplanned, dressed identically, uh, which is pretty nerdy, and I really wish you guys could see it. It's. Uh, Probably not that surprising that that hey surprise two professors dress in sort of nerdily identical ways. Well, I, I actually tend to think that you dress more um, that 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 your your repertoire is more sophisticated than mine, and so you know you, you dress down to my level. And today. you dress you you know you, yeah you definitely your shirt's pink though. My my shirt's kind of a bright red and pink. This yeah. is a mine's just white and blue. Yeah, yeah, that's the major. You're difference. more risque. I've got contacts on. You're wearing glasses. Totally different. So I was gonna wear contacts, but I'm playing basketball tonight, and I go. can't really wear contacts comfortably for more than like eight or ten hours. Um, uh, and so if I so put contacts in, it, I'm saving it for basketball. Okay, good. Because you don't you don't you don't play you don't play basketball. In so glasses. if I'm gonna play, <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, you wouldn't hit a man with glasses, would you? Get it? I, I yeah. do. And all indeed, right. I get hit all the... <laughs> if you play basketball with glasses, your glasses will soon be broken. It does indeed. All right, so we actually have a ton of good stuff to talk about. We and I just got out content. of class, so I'm punchy. Oh, you're all... Oh, good. That ought, that ought to help me. Um, so we're <laughs> Something gonna, new and different. We're going to open with Venezuela, which presents a whole slew of issues. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the, the coup talk versus, you know, in connection with recognition issues. Um, really interesting is this business about the... The 5,000 troops on John Bolton's legal pad. Oh, look, I walked into a nationally televised press conference <laughs> with a bright yellow legal pad tucked under my arm facing outward. It actually, you know, it's a springboard for an interesting statutory analysis we're going to get into um, involving uh, the Ronald W. Reagan National Defense Act. Uh, from more than a decade ago, but the relevant part of it is still on the books. And then we'll talk about sanctions, both both ours and theirs. Uh, we'll pivot from there to what the Gitmo implications of all this Afghan-Taliban peace deal talk might be. And then speaking of detainees, we'll take note of uh, the person I tried to popularize as Dovey Mattis II, but it really didn't work because he wasn't in U.S. custody. Uh, that's the case of American citizen Warren Christopher Clark, who had been in military custody of the SDF. So we weren't holding him, but he's an American citizen held as an Islamic state fighter in Syria. Um, damned if he didn't turn up in Houston last week, and he's under indictment now. So we'll, we'll talk hey about now. that. Um, Should we do a roadshow? Oh, you know, uh, we're in Houston fairly often. We can certainly do that. Um, he may not invite us, but <laughs> somebody there might. Uh, while we're on the prosecution theme, we will take note of a slew of National Security Division uh, terrorism-related case developments. We'll have, of course, the two Huawei, two very different but simultaneous Huawei indictments, um, including discussion of Tappy, the one-arm robot. Uh, <laughs> and then we'll, uh, we'll we'll harken back to the Nashiri oral, oral argument. and uh, Which I finally finished listening to. And, and I, I will admit I partially listened to. And we'll uh, we'll do a post-game show on that. It didn't get any better for the government. I suspected as much. That may or may not explain why I didn't quite get too far into it. <laughs> um, and while we're on the theme of things that uh, the courts have done, we'll go across the Atlantic. We'll go all the way to uh, the Denmark. Oh, no, Denmark. We're going to Denmark for a Danish Ruling, I thought it? we were going to The Hague, but I guess we're going to Copenhagen. I think we're going to Copenhagen for a Danish Can co we stop ruling. in The Hague? 
Well, let's get a beer. I, mean, I want to go to Schreveninger. I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> that sounds that sounds that sounds like good times. Is that legal in America? Schreveninger. It's can, a beach. Can you even can you even say that on the radio? Schreveninger. <laughs> okay, I'm now. This is I'm now going straight yeah, to. You, you are I'm going straight to Dutch hell. This is going to be fun. All right. Is the episode title straight to Dutch hell? We got a lot of we got a lot of silliness coming up. I feel. And speaking of, uh, we will close out, of course, with Super Bowl predictions. But I think we'll spend at least as much or more time talking about the live entertainment aspects of the non-sport variety. We got to talk about Super Bowl halftime shows. Do we? Well, it's in the contract somewhere. And we need to talk a little bit about uh, the closely related genre of live musicals, given what happened with Rent the other night. So listen, I, I, I really enjoyed I am a I am a I am a rent head. Um, um, before there was Hamilton in my life there was rent. Interesting. Okay. Um, and and as such I had huge problems with Rent the movie. I actually am not quite as down on Rent the Live Fox musical as a lot of people are. Okay, um, good. I'm I'm looking forward to breaking that although down. Although I do wonder if maybe we need to have understudies for the main parts. That yeah, <laughs> I, I have thoughts on that on that dimension, or at least I'm imagining there's like a super mad person. Out Hashtag there. rent not quite live, not quite live. All right, why don't we start off with Venezuela? Venezuela. All right, uh, I'm I'm sure listeners know that of course we we have uh, to tale of two presidents. Um, we have the. Uh, Utterly execrable, in my opinion, uh, Maduro regime. And now uh, Juan Guaido has uh, declared himself interim president in the United States and, very importantly, many other countries, including a number of South American countries, have uh, taken the same view. We've formally recognized him as the uh, legitimate uh, president of Venezuela. And, of course, we've got a crisis on our hands as a result of all this. It's actually the case that there's been a crisis for a very long time in Venezuela. It's a horrific uh, human tragedy that's been unfolding, I wouldn't even say in slow motion. It's just been persistent over time and getting much worse. Um, so first subtopic here is is the, the extent to which this U.S. action immediately set off talk in some quarters about, oh, here goes America with the coup and regime change. And, of course, Moscow and Beijing, but especially Moscow, has, has come in in support of that theme. Um, you know, for my part, I, I think that's baloney. Uh, to the extent that there's been a coup, it was, it was a coup from the top when uh, the Maduro regime engaged in all kinds of fraud, including barring the main opposition candidate from even running against him. Um, the, no, I mean, the, the, the election is clearly, you know, um, um, suffused with, with legitimacy problems. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just the guy, if, if it's one thing to try to say that, you know, any intervention by the United States, that there are limits to ways in which foreign governments should weigh in on this. That's a different topic. But let's not pretend that the Maduro regime yeah, yeah. is legitimate. But also, right. and it's also, I mean, it's also worth pointing out that although there is division internationally, we are hardly the only country. Yeah, this isn't some U.S. solo right. act, um, nor should it be. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Um, if you have a situation in which different countries each exercise their own sovereign prerogatives to decide whom they recognize as uh, this, the you know, the, the appropriate representative of the government diplomatically of, of another government. That is to say, if you have some countries that think Maduro's the legitimate government and others that think that Guaido is the legitimate uh, head of government, um, we have some interesting UN charter issues, which loom large when you get to the question of what outside states may or may not do to intervene in the situation. 
Because, of course, if you're intervening with the consent and by invitation of the legitimate government, well, that doesn't present a UN charter issue. It's not a sovereignty question. We're not even talking about use of force, really. We're talking about sovereignty more more broadly, Um, although certainly use of force would be part of the picture. Um, So if Maduro invites in uh, the Russian military to prop up his regime, he would claim that, well, of course, that's that's Venezuela inviting, as it as it is entitled to do, a foreign government to intervene militarily. Uh, but if Guaido is who we recognize and he invites us in, then it begins to look, uh, well, you know, what does it look like? It looks like Panama, the U.S. invasion of Panama, that sort of thing. Um, I, we're not going to really get anywhere with this other than to observe that questions about international law constraints on outside intervention in a world in which a number of states are recognizing different parties as the head, head of government, that is an invitation to some baseline guaranteed disagreement about whether there's an international law problem at all. Both sides are going to say that the other side's interventions, if they rise to a certain level that otherwise would be a problem, are in fact problematic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's not that interesting. What's interesting is the prospect that uh, lit up the internet when John Bolton uh, came into a room holding his legal pad, uh, paper facing outward with the words, among others, uh, 5,000 troops to Colombia for all the cameras <laughs> all the cameras to capture. Steve, what the heck? Okay, first of all, do you think that was on purpose? Do you think that was uh, sloppiness? Is it disinformation? Is, it, is he trolling everybody? Is he trolling Maduro? So, listen, I think I think it is probably on purpose. Um, I would say 85, 90% chance, right, that this was on purpose, that it was intentional. A little um, funky saber rattling of sorts. Well, and also sort of, you know, um, sending a message without having to send the message, right? Um, plausible deniability. Like that co- cost-free signaling. It's like we don't want to actually send a battleship offshore. We'll just uh, hint that we're doing that. Right. Um, I have to say... Um, if it was intentional, I'm not sure how I feel. Like, you know, I, 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 so I guess I'm troubled either way, right? Like, if it was Are act- we talking like the policy reaction yes. to po- possibly taking that action? So I'm troubled. First of all, I'm troubled by the policy side of it. Second, if it was unintentional, it's terrible OPSEC, but not that this administration, you know, can talk to anybody about OPSEC. Yeah, I um, agree. Like, if, if, that, if they actually were contemplating this particular development, whatever, whether it's good or not, if it was accidentally outed this right. way, that's just ridiculous. This is like the, the Steve Bannon whiteboard, um, <laughs> right, right. right? Or Chris Kobach, who had, you know, Department of Homeland Security plan facing out when he went to the White House. <laughs> like, I mean, you're either really incompetent or, you know, you're, you're trying to – you think you're playing chess when you're just playing checkers. <laughs> but anyway – My kids this, beat me at checkers often, so I can't laugh. Well, yeah, you know, but – you're playing chess. That's why. That's why you lose. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's probably intentional. I'm not sure that makes it smart. Yeah. Right. Okay. So there's also the question of whether let's assume for the sake of argument that this was more than trolling and indeed more than just a note that maybe he or even someone else took down mm-hmm. during a meeting when someone said, "Hey, why don't we do this?" and someone writes these words down. It didn't mean it. It does not mean it's the policy. Um, but let's assume that it might be because it's been put out there. This raises a really interesting statutory issue that uh, people who are who have had experience on uh, U.S. and Colombia policy will know this because this has been the law of the land for a long time. But people who are outsiders to that topic, I think, will be surprised to learn that there's some fairly particularized statutory constraints relating to U.S. troop presence numbers in Colombia. This all goes back to the uh, the Ronald W. Reagan National Defense Authorization Act from fiscal year 2005. 
Um, Section 1021 of the Reagan Act, if you will, it's titled Use of Funds for a Unified Counter-Drug and Counter-Terrorism Campaign in Colombia, or what is more popularly known as Plan Colombia. Plan Colombia was, was you know, not unlike the, the Merida Initiative vis-a-vis Mexico, uh, sort of a, an umbrella phrase describing a variety of forms of support the United States was providing to those respective governments as they dealt with, you know, the various security problems they've got. So this, this goes back to the, to the heyday of Colombia's struggles with the FARC in particular, though not only the FARC. But here's what's interesting. Um, Section 1021A provides that uh, the funds that DOD has to provide assistance to the government of Colombia, um, or sorry, there's funding available may be used by SECDEF to support a unified campaign by the government of Colombia against narcotics trafficking and against activities by organizations designated as terrorist organizations like FARC. There's a further clause that says, this actually also includes authority to take actions to protect human health and welfare in emergency circumstances, and including the undertaking of rescue operations. But then you go on to part C, and it says, when conducting activities pursuant to that language I just read, you're capped at 800 uniformed military personnel and 600 contractors uh, from the American side. So 1,400 total presence counting the contractors. That's, that's a hard cap if, if, if the personnel are there under color of the authority described a moment ago. That is supporting the counter-drug, the counter-terrorism, and the, the expander clauses for emergency rescue and health and welfare. And so my, my first reaction to this is it is not at all obvious in my opinion, that the best reading of the statute is that it would ban 5,000 or any number of U.S. personnel. They would apply at all if U.S. personnel are being based out of Colombia vis-a-vis Venezuela and the security situation unfolding there. I think actually the best reading is that's just a different authority. And there is a clause in that same act, uh, Clause E, uh, that states the authority provided by subsection A is in addition to any other authority in law to provide assistance to the government of Colombia. I think it's even, a fortiori, even more so the case if it's not even really about Colombia. Right. Colombia is just the base. Of course, then the question is, what are we doing with these troops? Right, exactly. So I would assume, it, look, if, I, if I'm NSC uh, legal advisor, if I'm DOD general counsel, um, these troops would be there poised to intervene if necessary to protect American citizens, uh-huh. government personnel, and others. Well, I got to say, the one thing that seems to be going well, right, is that both sides have said, we're not going to mess with the Americans. They're smart to do that. Well, <laughs> both, both sides. One, one, one side has absolutely no reason to, nor no, no, any ability to mess with the Americans. But even the Maduro, Maduro Maduro's folks have made it clear that like, they have no intention of taking hostile acts against American diplomatic personnel in Venezuela. No question that for now it's like that. But yeah. one wonders when the situation deteriorates. It, could, it course, really of, could turn of south. Of course. But just, it could have, uh, when we first started talking about this, right, we were right. worrying that it could deteriorate quickly. And at least it seems to be only deteriorating slowly. That's right. Although, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's, I saw something earlier that said that there's been a huge surge, no surprise, in security forces gradually making security detentions all around the country. They are rounding people up left and right. Yeah. And this will come up again in the sanctions. They're, Good. They're, we're going to get to that in a moment. Let me read one other bit of statutory fun, though. Section 1021. One other bit of statutory fun. You like that? Section 1021 also has subclause D, and I would characterize this as an interesting species. We talk a lot about AUMF-type clauses. That is, you know, bits of language. And, and Matt Waxman is the king of finding these things. Like he just posted at Lawfare about um, a Formosa-related one from the 1953. There's a, there's a lot of language out there that 
even though the overall act isn't titled or designed as an AMF, looks like little mini authorizations for the military to do this or that. Well, here's an anti-AMF clause. How about that? Subtitled um, <laughs> limitation on participation of U.S. personnel. No U.S. Armed Forces personnel, dot, 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 uh, may participate in any combat operation in connection with assistance using funds pursuant to the authority in subsection A, except for the purpose of acting in self-defense or rescuing any U.S. citizens, dot, dot, dot. So, again, the key there is whether, I don't think that would apply here because I don't think any 5,000 troops deployed to Colombia for the Venezuela situation would actually be subject to that constraint because it's not based on that, that subsection A's purpose. But it's a cool illustration of how sometimes there is authorization in statute that comes with anti-AUMF right. style provisions. It comes with strings. Absolutely. Of course, uh, the strings come unwound if it's a plausible claim that there's self-defense or hostage rescue or threat to U.S. personnel. You got to rescue them, and that can that can be the bootstrap effect, right? I feel like there's a there's like a, a Fleming versus Page and Mitchell versus Harmony reference coming around the corner. There could be, but I'm gonna rely on you to make those. Uh oh. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, what has the Maduro regime done besides unleashing slowly but surely his security forces on people supporting uh, Guaido? Um, well, he's got his sanctions. He They froze Guaido's assets. Why? Well, because we just gave him all the assets. We have hooked him up. Um, all their money is all bound up, of course, in the oil industry. Uh, Petróleos de Venezuela SA, or PDVSA, is the, the uh, sort of the nationalized uh, petroleum entity. Uh, the U.S. government has... Uh, recently expanded its sanctions regimes. Now, it's interesting because we've been talking recently on this show a lot about national emergency declarations that seem, oh, is it really an emergency? And how that unlocks all kinds of authorities. We've been talking about that because of the border wall threat to, you know, seize military funds to do that. But originally and more often we talk about it in relation to unlocking the sanctions regimes under IEPA. And here we have a national emergency declared as to Venezuela. But Trump didn't do it. Obama did it way back in 2015. Uh, and it's it's an interesting, and, and there's been a sanctions regime as a result in place since then. All that's happened under Trump recently, last week, was expanding the existing structure to count PDVSA, the oil company, as part of the government of Venezuela, which it wasn't clearly covered under our statutory interpretation before, or sorry, our sanctions interpretation before. This in turn results in the sanctioning of, uh, you know, the prohibition on doing services with them. And, the, and it goes hand in hand with a determination by the U.S. government to recognize uh, Guaido as the proper authority for accessing those funds. And we, we will allow him to do that. That'll be a permitted activity. Point being, we've spent a lot of time bashing the National Emergencies Act and the prospect of President Trump clearly uh, cynically invoking it for the border where there's plainly no emergency. Um, there's a spectrum that runs from that silly claim of emergency that we may yet still see to things that everyone would agree are indeed national emergencies. And somewhere on that spectrum are foreign policy scenarios where something really bad's happening in a foreign country. Um, and you could argue that it's not quite an emergency in a strong, strict, exigent sense. And it's interesting to ask, you know, how do we all really feel about the circumstances in Venezuela circa 2015? I think it's well within the, the actual practice of both Republican and Democratic presidents over time to treat serious foreign policy problems 
as national emergency declaration worthy so you can unlock these international economic sanctions. And we're seeing that uh, unspooling here. Yeah, man, listen, we, we talked about this, I mean, as you say, from the get-go, the, the, to me, the, the two least controversial species of emergency declarations are when there's a genuine, you know, full-blown emergency on U.S. soil or in this sort of foreign sanction context where that's always been understood as one of the features of the regime. Yep. All right. So I actually think that on the whole, we've not yet seen anything legally dicey. No. And, and, and frankly, I mean, it's not clear to me that, you know, maybe the steps would have been taken in different orders and maybe different things would have been said by different people. Uh, maybe we'd have more confidence in the person at the very top of this apparatus. But it's not clear to me that the actions the U.S. has taken this thus far are radically different than what we would have seen from another oh, president. Oh, yeah. I actually think that this is pretty much what we what we would have seen and that I would want to have seen. I think it's all good on the whole. Although, see, I mean, you know, who, what, that, there's been nothing really to react to so far, right? It's, yeah. if, if things really do deteriorate, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yep. And, it, and so I guess we can close this topic by just noting, um, you know, there is definitely a deep and long Article Two inherent power tradition rescue. involving rescue of yep. U.S. citizens abroad, protection of U.S. citizens abroad. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. I think the, the question is whether the, if it gets to that point, um, we're using that authority as cover for even broader actions. Right. It becomes a question of proportionality. Did the thing Indeed. that you then do, is it proportional to what you just said your basis for acting was? So all this is to say, fascinating stuff. Yep. All right. Speaking of fascinating stuff. Um, this whole podcast. <laughs> it's so true. What you say is so true. It's so persuasive. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's suddenly rapid uh, movement on the, or at least seeming movement, on the Afghan-Taliban negotiation front. And we're, we're <laughs> seeing signs. Now, of course, this is all surrounded with lots of criticism, as you might imagine. Some of it seems pretty well taken. Um, but it seems like there's a real chance, and I, more so than I think I've ever seen before, that we may do a deal that that is a Whatever, whatever actually happens, we'll have the trappings of a peace agreement with the Taliban. They'll promise to do all sorts of things that they probably will not do. Yep. But as a cover for us to get to out. To withdraw. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and so Which what, the president has been talking about quite publicly. Indeed. And, and so there's reason to believe he wants to do it and then he might do it. Uh, it may well be the right thing to do. I don't claim to have the expertise. Uh, we are many years into it. And uh, there's this question of, you know, what is the end game, if not this, um, that's realistically within reach. So you and I both were a little active on Twitter flagging that this has implications on the yeah, legal front. You yeah. Unpack that for me. What is that all about? Okay. So here we have to get back to what you and I, I think, have generally agreed is one of the most vexing open questions about the scope of the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, which is that although the Supreme Court in the Hamdi case held that the AUMF Bobby does trigger the, you know, law of detention, right, and the international laws of war, um, that detention consistent with the laws of war is part and parcel of what the AUMF brings with it. Hamdi was so insistent upon limiting its analysis to both the geographic space of the AFPAC theater and the temporal sort of state of, state of play on the ground yeah. circa 2004. Right. So Justice O'Connor's plurality opinion um, in rejecting Hamdi's argument that the detention authority and more generally, the use of force authority the government was asking for was indefinite. Said, you know, maybe if things change on the ground, the conventional law of war understanding, in her words, may unravel. But we're not there today. And of course, the million-dollar question has been, okay, but what if one day we get there? 
Right. So you might you might imagine sort of a, a map of the globe that, that indicates where we are using or have been using military force under color of the 2001 AUMF. And if you think of it as a heat map where— and Is the White House logo going to be over Russia? The White House? Wait, what is this? Oh, you didn't see this on, no? on Twitter? What? Oh, there was this big briefing um, <laughs> at the White House where there was a, a, a map of the world where Russia was very prominent and the logo of the White House was just fortuitously over Russia. I guess I'm just glad it wasn't the reverse. Well, indeed. <laughs> so, anyways, that's really funny. Um, so if you imagine this map of, of where AMF-related activity is taking place, and then you imagine as a heat map where green signifies that, at least in that particular geographic location— Legal authority has been upheld by yeah, courts. Yeah, and, and, and related to that, the, the degree, the intensity of the combat operations is such that most, even for those who take yeah. a very strict geography by geography yeah. approach to the armed conflict yeah. question, they would say, yeah, there, that place right now, you have armed conflict, even if it's not global. Yep. Uh, and red is everywhere else. Um, the idea would be that Afghanistan's more or less been lit green on that map this whole time, and it makes it relatively easy. You don't have to confront the questions that are vexing elsewhere, because we just don't have Gitmo detainees who are, by and large, lacking in a nexus. They all have a nexus for the most part because it's a legacy bunch of detainees. At one level or another, they kind of trace back to having been in Afghanistan at the time of the armed conflict or it's all still going there. If you remove that pin, it's like a Jenga deal, right? You're removing that pillar because the whole legal edifice collapse. Well, so I I don't know if it could – so the Jenga metaphor is the right one or analogy. Metaphor, analogy, uh, analogy, simile. It's not a simile. Like. It's like a Jenga tower. Like it as. Well, I did say like, didn't I? Yeah. yeah. All right, whatever, whatever the heck it is. Yeah, it's a simile. Um, the, it, it works because I actually don't think that concluding some kind of formal peace deal with Afghanistan knocks the tower over. But it sure as heck pulls out a bunch of the foundational pieces on the bottom. So for the Gitmo – so for anyone – do you, okay, so question one is – Because right? yeah. surely the government's position is not – that a peace deal with the Taliban ends the armed conflict. The oh, it's not going to be the government's position. No, 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 no way. But, but but also, I mean, e- even I, I mean, even I, um, accept that the Taliban can't um, negotiate peace terms on behalf of Al Qaeda, um, uh-huh. right? And right. that and that, insofar as the Taliban and Al Qaeda are the two organizations everybody agrees are covered by the AUMF, concluding hostilities with one of them, even if we do conclude formally, doesn't perforce apply to the other. So two two really important issues that I want to disentangle that I hadn't realized I was blurring, but based on what you said, I now realize I was conflating them. Issue one is the, the kind of relatively formal and clear one of what if you have a peace agreement and you formally legally settle yep. out with one side? Yep. Absolutely. Doing a deal with the Taliban, you know, no doubt the deal itself will include actual direct treatment of this, you know, insofar as there's somebody who's still in custody who would be part of that. Which, which by the way, and Charlie Savage, who, who I trust on all these things, doesn't think that any of the remaining 40 Gitmo detainees are pure Taliban I think detainees. that's right. I, I think, think so too. I think the Bergdahl yeah. deal was the end last of, of the that last part Taliban. of the population. I think that's right. So, so formally speaking, the, the removal of the Taliban, if we, if we imagine them being redlined out of the AMF <laughs> as a result of the deal, that doesn't change anything because the government's claim is, yeah, no, but all the 40 remaining, these are al-Qaeda related. My, the thing I really wanted to get at was the second possible argument, which all of them who want to litigate, and let's remember, not all those 40 have ever wanted to litigate. Some of them are you know, not availing themselves of that habeas option. But all the ones who want to litigate it will come back with, you know, these are all people who at this point have lost their habeas petitions if they wanted to pursue them. But you can come back if conditions change. So in their successive next round habeas petition, they'll argue that the absence of the, the, the arrival of the peace deal reduces the level of intensity 
of the armed conflict such that it is not an armed conflict anymore. It's gone below that threshold. Therefore, the law of armed conflict switch has been turned off, and therefore the AUMF no longer carries with it the law of armed conflict detention model that was the basis for uh, O'Connor's plurality opinion in Hamdi. Now, I'm not saying that's the right analysis, but it is absolutely descriptively what we're going to see as the argument. We saw hints of that as soon as Obama said, hey, major combat operations. Are we saw litigation. There. And yeah. keep in mind, I mean, Al Alwi, the, the most recent DC yeah. Circuit case to raise this issue, um, the government's response to Al Alwi's cert petition is currently due February 11th. Um, so <laughs> that, that response becomes right. a lot more awkward because yeah. Al Alwi's claim is, you know, things right. have wound down, the facts on the ground are different. I mean, Al Alwi is, is sort of, that case is is, is directly about Absolutely. this issue. Yeah, there's some, do you do 28 J letters? What's the equivalent in the Supreme Court? Uh, uh, supplemental briefs. Yeah, okay, so supplemental briefing on what's the effect of this deal. Now, that deal isn't going to happen anytime soon, so it'll be too late for Al Alwi. Probably. But, it'll, but it'll come up again. Now, let's think through sort of how this gets analyzed and what the moving parts are. So there's habeas. That'll be the vehicle. Um, the question: The government will represent that the armed conflict with Al Qaeda continues, and they'll they'll cite whatever facts on the ground are yeah. available. But they'll also claim this is an executive branch determination, anyways, and it's not really right right for the court to dig into the facts too much, which becomes a Fed courts kind of issue. Yeah, although we I mean, when when Al Ali came down, right, we talked about how sort of little time the DC Circuit spent on whether it was their job to to answer the question presented or not, right? That it was the DC Circuit sort of almost assumed that the case was properly before them, just that the government should win. Right. Well, so it's interesting. You can assume that it's properly before you. You have jurisdiction and you should engage it. You can't assume jurisdiction. Fed courts oh, guy. So sorry. So sorry. You can, for the next step in our argument, move to the next <laughs> issue beyond jurisdiction. And and having answered it, yes, we've got jurisdiction. We are going to engage this. But there's the question of deference to the executive no, agree, branch but, and judging no, agree, the facts. But, but the structural future of the political question doctrine is jurisdictional. Um, ah, right. So, right. Okay. So, so these two won't be separate. Well, either way. So you get to this question, and they may say we're going to decide this. See, see, but what, we're see what happens when you go into Fed courts land. But we're you I, don't come out. That's, I'm looking for the door, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, um, there's going to be an interesting question, and we have changing personnel, yeah. and we may, you know, so will Justice Kavanaugh? Where will Justice Gorsuch be? So, the, so what, I, what I really wonder is not if this is going to change the answer, right? But if, given how much of the Supreme Court's one foray into the field was Afghanistan based, yeah, um, and given the Justice Breyer, who is, you know, I think, you know, has some ability to actually talk to his colleagues to his right, right, um, has been vocal about the questions the court has not answered. I wonder if, wholly apart from how it would affect any one individual case, the court would be more inclined to, to get back into this um, if, it, if it's faced with a case where the facts have now totally changed. And yeah. if it thinks it's an appropriate vehicle, not necessarily for saying, therefore, the law has changed, but just that we need to actually put this on clearer footing for all involved. It'll be really interesting. You can imagine it, it, it. I have no idea how to prognosticate whether there's a majority that would take a favorable view right. of a relatively low threshold of intensity to make this still be an armed conflict with al-Qaeda. It is worth noting that um, if we talk a lot about does the Islamic State fall within the AUMF authority um, and because it broke free. And the idea was the sort of the taint of the AUMF stays with it. They didn't get to exempt themselves from the AUMF by leaving. But what about the sort of reverse scenario where a court a year from now is trying to decide, is there still a conflict? Do we have enough intensity for there to be an armed conflict with core al-Qaeda? Do you get to count any of the activities currently underway vis-a-vis -vis the Islamic State? given that they definitely are not currently part of al-Qaeda. Um, that's sort of an interesting interpretive question. Now, the court may, this may be one where the judges say, you know what, this is all, 
this is a judgment for the commander in chief and the sole organ in foreign affairs. This is a judgment for the president. And they also might say, and this is right up your alley, they might also say, well, it's, we don't really need to decide that now because even if the armed conflict phase has ended, this is a ludicky type situation mm-hmm. where it's precipitous for us to intervene and tell the government they've got to release somebody because the war has ended. Uh, do you want to say a few words to remind the audience about ludicky and what the Supreme Court said there? Ludicky versus Watkins, 1948. So the Supreme Court, um, the question was about the Alien Enemy Act of 1798. And the Alien Enemy Act provides authority to detain nationals of countries with which we are at in a declared war. Um, Kurt Ludicke was a German national who was still being held as an alien enemy as late as 1948 and says, yo, Germany doesn't exist anymore. There is no country called Germany. How can you still be holding me under the auspices of this statute? And the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 opinion by Justice Frankfurter, says... Who says the war is over, right? The, yeah. the president hasn't said the war is over. Congress hasn't said the war is over. So the war is not over. Right. So, and, and of course, here, the obligatory citation to wartime by Mary Didziak, the, the, the flexibility of or the mismatch between how we talk about wartime versus peacetime versus the legal frameworks and other frameworks. So long story short, a peace deal will set off lots of litigation. It'll yep. keep our show in business, but it's not going to result in any real quick answers. No. And just one more thing that ought to be said. Um, at the very least, it ought to hopefully also reignite um, a conversation on Capitol Hill about how maybe it's time to revisit the AUMF. It'll be interesting. You know, a lot of the, the enthusiasm for that, it, it, the enthusiasm for that from, from representative to representative has an intimate tie to what they think is going to happen and what they'd like to see happen in, in an environment where it seems like, notwithstanding all the Trump administration's bluster, it is actually proving on certain dimensions, you know, of course, sort of famously to be somewhat neo-isolationist. It, you know, the president's instincts were to you know, precipitously shut down our involvement in Syria. Now there's, there's pressure manifesting along those lines on the Afghanistan front. And of course, he's never going to say anything that would be thrown back in his face about having said we're moving away from being strong against al-Qaeda. The practical result may actually be that way. And that could lead some who would otherwise be interested in a restraint-oriented statute to maybe not want congressional action because congressional action might be more hawkish yeah. than the Trump administration. Uh, it may be, but you know, I, I guess I'm one of those who is willing, at least to some degree, to take the risk that, um, in in the name of um, requiring Congress to at least, ha- you know, even if Congress reaches a result I don't like, I think You'd there's value. Get them on record. Yeah. Get them on record. Get them actually, like, you know, doing I mean, their job. I mean, what percent of the current Congress voted, you know, was in Congress in September 2001 mm-hmm. and voted for the AUMF? P- perhaps I would say a distressingly large percentage from a sort of a too many career politicians. Yeah, perspective. But, I mean, I, I, you know. I should, we should have a research assistant. Alex, this is going to be a project for you, right? Yeah, Go back to work. Good out. work, man. Um, okay, so speaking of detainees, uh, we have this guy, this American citizen, Warren Clark, uh, from Texas. Now, now in Texas again. <laughs> he was. Uh, we talked about it a couple of shows ago. He was widely known through a lot of the public activity that he himself had put out into social media, had to have gone over and joined the Islamic State. He eventually did get captured. The SDF had him. They're holding him in Syria. And and there was a question, would he be turned over to the U.S. military? Would he end up sort of like a Dovey Mattis kind of situation? And the answer is, nope, that's not what happened. He was turned over, at least according to the, the, the limited language described by the Justice Department in reporting his indictment and uh, his arraignment in Houston last Friday, uh, turned over to law enforcement custody. 
And so this was not one of these slow boat for U.S. direct military custody and military interrogation as you're slowly brought to the U.S., but rather sounds like he was brought over more directly and put right into the uh, criminal justice system. That, of course, doesn't mean that there hasn't been an extended period of some form of U.S. military interrogation focused access to him while he was formally or at least nominally in SDF custody. So we don't want to assume this was too different functionally from what I think of as the Warsami model of hybrid uh, military detention for a short period for interrogation, followed by back-end law enforcement prosecution. And and as you know, I like the slow boat model. I think in a lot of these situations, (laughs) the right way to suit both the sort of uh, the pressure to do some serious interrogation within legal boundaries uh, on the front end, but then to secure a reliable and legitimate long-term detention model is exactly this. So he's facing right now an attempted material support to Islamic State charge based on the type of support we describe as providing one's own self as personnel to the group. Um, it's basically a membership charge, but we don't like to say in America we have membership offenses, even with the DFTOs, the designated foreign terrorist organizations. But what we do have is providing yourself as personnel, which is a cute phrase, but it's a euphemism. It's membership. Um He's being charged with attempting to make himself a member. I interpret that as just the placeholder charge. The one thing that they're quite sure they can prove is he at least attempted to do that. Surely they feel he actually succeeded, and this charge will be uh, uh, added to later on, and there will be a, probably a raft of additional charges at some point. But you only need the one for the for the uh, original arraignment and the original indictment and all the rest, so they've got that. I don't think it'll end up being all that interesting a case, except in so far as we're trying to figure out what's the way to the punishment for a guy who's really been there and done that and wasn't just talking about it. Now, we do have some people uh, who are interesting to compare them to. So we have a, a slew of uh, Islamic State related material support cases that originate stateside over the past week. And uh, it's just amazing how often this happens. And it's really telling that for the most part, unless it happens in your town, you just don't hear about it. Unless you listen to the show and you stick around for the National Security Division rundown. There but, you, you know, get, roll back to our early days working in this in this area post 9-11. And these sorts of things used to be big deals, right? You, you get some guys from Lackawanna who have gone over to do training and they come back and they get arrested and people are writing books about it. Now it's just sort of a, a blip out of the DOJ press feed. All right, so yesterday in Ohio, Damon Joseph uh, indicted and arrested. He's one of these guys who's posting online Islamic State stuff and in, in publicly viewable ways, and it gets publicly viewed by the FBI. They put into place undercover agents to interact with him, and suffice to say, it culminates in him wanting to attack a synagogue, and after he took possession of guns in a controlled exchange, they then arrested him and rolled, rolled him up. This, of course, will turn into uh, what we often see in these cases. You know, There'll be an entrapment claim and that sort of argument, whereas the government will say, look, thank God we spotted this guy, and he was eventually going to do something dangerous. We controlled the landing, as it were. We shall see. Uh, last Friday, this is interesting, not Islamic State. This is this is something uh, that I think is best described as domestic terrorism. Uh, 25 to 30 year sentences for three Kansas men who were planning to bomb an apartment complex uh, that it was an effort to kill Somali immigrants, some Muslim immigrants from Somalia. Um, and I'll quote, of all people, uh, uh, Acting Attorney General Whitaker, here's his quote, Today's sentence is a significant victory against hate crimes and domestic terrorism. Uh, this whole thing came undone not through social media activity. These guys weren't trumpeting publicly what they were doing, but somebody that they shared what they were doing with or who was suspicious 
became a confidential source and, and blew the whistle on them to the FBI, and in doing so, probably saved a ton of lives. Way to go, confidential source. Good job. Um, I, I emphasize this one because we we get tons of these Islamic State material support terrorism cases. Um, there's been a lot of debate and talk over the past year about is is FBI, is the Justice Department, is our national dialogue sufficiently paying attention to what is often described as right wing or, or race focused uh, um, uh, terrorism, and, and is it not called terrorism enough? Is the government in the Trump administration in particular, are they are they declining to call it what it is, like it's only terrorism when it's foreign or when it's a person of color, et cetera, or, or Islamic? Um, and here's one where, you know, the acting AG absolutely called it what it was, domestic terrorism. So good on him. Uh, and then lastly, three men in Michigan arrested last week. Uh, one of them was trying to leave the country at the airport. Uh, this was a conspiracy to support Islamic State uh, type case. We see tons of these. This is another one where social media postings is what led the FBI to, to spot these guys. So, um, yeah, there you go. Your, your terrorism charges round up. Um, and we, still have, we also have some, some military commission developments. Let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the milcoms, and we can come back to Huawei because that's obviously— Oh, actually, I'm a, sorry. Yeah. Do you want to no, do no, Huawei no, first? it makes more sense to go to military commissions. Let's stay with the military stuff. Uh, and then, and then uh, while, we're, while we're on awkward— we'll Or the terrorism to, stuff, yeah. Well, um, so, okay, so in the um, two, I think two different things to talk about in the commissions. The first is sort of the awkwardness of the 9-11 proceedings this week having to get suspended— um, because poor Judge Perella has a detached retina or something like that, um, which, you know, I, I, stuff happens. And I feel bad for yeah. Judge Perella. I hope he recovers quickly. And I hope that the, you know, but there was this sort of remarkable sort of flurry of activity this morning because he was apparently having trouble getting TRICARE to arrange for some kind of medevac. Um, and it was funny because you saw the entire Gitmo community um, from, like, the judge's wife to Carol Rosenberg, to the defense lawyers, all like this PR campaign to get Judge Perella out of Gitmo and get him the medical care he needs. <laughs> That's, you know, getting the judge, having trouble getting the judge out of Gitmo. It's a good metaphor. I mean, for like, you know, I say all this because like nothing about Guantanamo is easy. No, it's true. I mean, choosing to have proceedings there has huge logistical ramifications. And this is a nice illustration. Well, I wouldn't of, say nice. This is a, this uh, is a nice in the telling. term of art sense. Yes. I mean, it's just I, the same I know, thing. Yeah. I know. I'm just, yeah, yeah. Um, but just, I mean, it is right. It is a telling illustration of how everything is freaking difficult at Guantanamo. Exactly. So, all right. Um, meanwhile, so I actually finally did, I had a couple of very long flights, uh, uh, last week, um, and had a chance to finally listen all the way through to the oral arguments in, in Ray Spears and Ryan Shiri. I gotta say, I think my initial reaction was I have not moved off my initial reaction. Did it probably even get stronger? It the, got worse. The government's for the gonna government. lose big time on this. I really so so it's never a good sign if you're the government when the petitioner's counsel when when the judge who you most need on the panel asks the petitioner's counsel says to the petitioner's counsel, listen, let's assume you're good. Let's assume we agree with you on the merits. Yeah. <laughs> At that point, just, I'm like, just how harsh should the sanction be? Right. Um, and, and it seems like that's what that's the whole it's all going to come down to just how many of Judge Spath's rulings yeah. are going to get wiped out. Um, Judge Griffith spent some time talking about whether rulings that were affirmed by the CMCR de novo should be left intact because they've been sort of, you know, the taint has been dissipated. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, but, they, you yeah. know, and I think I think Michelle had a fairly effective rejoinder that that's not how we ever approach Judicial disqualification yeah. issues, even in cases involving incidental problems that yep. are being sort of overcorrected in an excess of caution because of the high stakes of perceived legitimacy. He's very powerful in arguing that you know here where it's just it, it's it's so comical what happened. You've you've 
you've got to be a little bit more uh, sweeping in your. And, and I really, th- and uh, you know, Joseph Palmer argued for the government, and I, mean, I think he had a tough case. But there was one exchange. Oh yeah. I, I lost track of whether it was Tatel or, or Griffith, but there was one exchange where, um, you know, I, I don't know if he meant to say this, but she was like, you know, um, this kind of thing happens all the time. Now, of course, what he meant was Ouch. retiring military officers right. are often looking for post military employment. Sure. And for obvious reasons, the federal government is one of the first places they of look course. to for a civilian position. So far, so good. The problem is that, you know, you have the judge, you have the sort of against the baggage of judge schools, the currently presiding judge, also having the same problem. Well, like the short answer to it is like, sure, and disclose it. Right. Precisely right. because this is ordinary. Be transparent that but you also can't th- not disclose but it. But also, this is this is also why I tell my, my students all the time to be careful with their pronouns. Be yeah, careful with your yeah, pronouns yeah. and your articles, right? Yeah. This happens all the time. What is what this? What is this? <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and there was, so I didn't listen very long because after about 15 minutes of the, the first argument, I thought, okay, this is not, I think I know where this is going. But um, I was really struck by one part and I wasn't sure which judge asked about it. But one of the judges said, well, look, maybe this, we need some fact finding perhaps. Maybe it should go back to to the new judge. Judge schools can weigh in on this. And, and it was really funny just kind of listening to Michelle saying, like, well, you know, same problem there. Literally, <laughs> and, and there was, I don't know which judge it was. They're like, wait, what? Really? Like, still? Yeah. Yeah, still. Um, so that's, you know, it's only a question of time before they issue a ruling that's and, and, in and favor the, of, And the question is just how many of Judge Spatz's rulings do they wipe out? How, how yeah. far back do they rewind? And I wouldn't be surprised at all if the panel makes clear that nothing should go back to judge schools, right? That that whatever the remedy is, the next proceeding to take place in the Sherry's case in the military commission should be, and maybe they'll even say, and government, perhaps you want to consider a military judge who is not in the middle of looking for another job. Yeah, I know. And it just this whole thing highlights the fundamental mismatch between a, a system that circa November 2001, the people who were thinking about doing this as a good idea thought the whole magic of it, at least in part, was how quickly it would turn because that's how ex parte Karen went. Right. This is the dead opposite of that. It could not be more 180 degrees away from that. And you have a, you have a situation where the staffing of the judges, it's almost guaranteed that none of them can stay in the case and you constantly have to resupply. And this is no way to run the railroad. The, the, one last thing I just want to say about this, because I think this also is worth just sort of fleshing out a bit. The government said at various points during the argument that there's no need, that, that the, the way to sort of protect against the special concerns that arise from having judges without tenure protection um, is is the is the is the doctrine of unlawful influence, right? That 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 unlawful influence exists entirely to remedy or to 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 preempt the kinds of independence concerns that would that would that you wouldn't expect when you have an Article Three judge. And I think the the reaction that got is the correct one, which is well, unlawful influence is one problem. Right, but it's not the only problem. That's right. I mean, bias, bias, and the appearance of bias can come from lots of things other than your commanders, you know, appearing to do things that are influencing your decisions. No, that's right. And in the ordinary court context, at least in the federal system, we just don't ever encounter this. We rarely encounter the prospect. Although yep. sometimes you have you have judges who will retire to yeah. go back into private practice. But when they do, man, it's transparent. They disclose. Yeah. They don't get involved in any cases involving this firm. And when you see somebody get anywhere near that line, the 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 reviewing court comes down like a ton of bricks. I think that's right. Yeah, and for good reason. Well, speaking of coming down like a ton of bricks on somebody, uh, the National Security Division's coming down on Huawei. Uh, Awkward. The, yeah, so we have we have double-barreled uh, indictments, two very different cases, but dropping about the same time. 
you know, everyone's been hearing about the uh, the one involving alleged fraud in order to circumvent uh, U.S. sanctions on doing business with Iran. Um, this is what led to the arrest of Huawei CFO, who's being held in Vancouver on house arrest pending U.S. extradition request. That The indictment and the request are now in, and uh, you can read the indictment. It's, you know, it, in some ways, this is fairly straightforward. Um, of course, a lot of people are viewing it all through the lens of the larger U.S.-China, first the, the trade tensions and the Trump she tensions, but also the larger sort of intelligence-focused battle over trying to keep Huawei out of the world's 5G networks that are being built. I'm sure. I'm sure all of that is relevant in part of the context. But you know, you got to read the indictment for what it says. And you know, grand jury has decided to allege, based on what they've seen so far, that in fact there was this fairly substantial effort by Huawei to cook the books with subsidiaries such that they could do business and route money in and out of the United States through U.S. banking facilities with Iran, doing business in Iran at a time where U.S. banks were absolutely not supposed to be doing that. If the allegations are true, then this was an attempt, you know, this kind of fraud goes on with international sanctions all the time. It's not like it's some bizarre, wow, that never happened. Surely that didn't happen here. It's not that hard to believe it happened here. What makes it fascinating is the fact that instead of indicting the company or corporate officials in a context in which it's just not at all clear that you'd actually get your hands on Chinese citizens, uh, we took steps, dramatic steps, to nab a particularly sensitive one, a senior company official while she was in Vancouver, where she has several homes, by the way. So that's a big deal. Um, the other case is getting lumped into that with that case as if there's something that feels opportunistic and sort of a um, cross-domain part of the current tensions between the U.S. and China. But I think, having read this indictment, this is just a straight-up act of, of illegal IP theft by a company that seems really, really, really well-documented, seems clearly to have occurred, where Huawei was determined to try to steal Tappy the Robot. Mm -hmm. So who's Tappy the Robot? Tappy the Robot is a T-Mobile creation from several years back. It's kind of a funny story. Basically, there's there was a huge amount of value in this really neat combination of hardware and software they generated to make a robot arm to basically pour tons of time into realistically tapping on devices to test their worthiness and how well they hold up over time so that they didn't put T-Mobile... Um, imprimatur onto devices that then go into stores and turn out to be crappy devices. So they really get a market advantage by this thing they cooked up. And uh, Huawei is one of the vendors supplying phones to them. And they have this uh, arrangement with lots of outside vendors making the phones. Tappy puts them through their paces. And it becomes clear to the Huawei folks that their products aren't doing too well. They'd be benefited greatly if only they could have their own Tappy in their own factories before they got to T-Mobile for this testing so they could, you know, do some of that testing themselves. And they kept asking and asking and asking and asking for all the specs and the details to basically enable them to replicate it. They tried to license it. And T-Mobile is saying, no, 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 and no. You can have access to our lab on controlled circumstances. You can use it, but you can't have the IP. And it was really, really clear that this is something Huawei wanted. And T-Mobile got to the point where they said, if you keep asking, we're going to bar you from the lab. And then you have all these emails and phone calls and clearly people cooperating, witnesses sharing information that Huawei China told Huawei USA, 
you need to get this for us one way or the other. And eventually, when that wasn't producing anything more than illicit photography of the equipment, they sent a guy over. Would love to know more about this guy. <laughs> they sent a guy over. The Huawei U.S. guys badge him through uh, in violation of their agreements into the lab. And he starts you know, capturing all kinds of technical information. They get busted for it. They're basically told, like, don't you ever do that again. We may, we're suspending your access. Um, they, they, T-Mobile makes the mistake of letting one guy from Huawei USA still have access to the lab. And lo and behold, poor Tappy ends up in his bag. Or one, <laughs> one iteration of Tappy. This, this robot arm falls into his bag and comes out, at which point... Is that a robot arm in your pocket or are you just happy <laughs> to see me? There's a podcast title. Oh my God, that's so good. Episode 108. Write that down. Um, really? Yeah, come on. We, can, we can't do better than that. That's pretty dirty. Is that okay. a robot arm in your pocket? <laughs> well, anyways, so I mean, they're totally busted. And then the indictment goes on for good measure to point out how uh, Huawei China sent out this like global like employee reward program for basically stealing IP. And there is this sort of half-ass Huawei USA uh, statement from one of their employees saying, hey, this is maybe okay in some parts of the world, but really we're not supposed to do this. This might be construed badly. This shouldn't be characterized as some sort of Trump's out to get no, or no, the no, ICs no, out no, to get no, Huawei. No, no, no. They stole stuff. Yes. They're busted. They they should lose that case. Although every time you say Huawei, I think Wawa, and I want some iced tea lemonade. What, what is that? What is Wawa? You, Bobby yeah, you, Chesney. If you said if you said Arnold Palmer, I'd be with you on they iced don't tea call lemonade. It, they, don't call it, they don't call it Arnold Palmer. They call it Wawa. It's Wawa, the chain of convenience stores in uh, the Mid Atlantic, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland. This is not my territory. We call we call that an Arnold Palmer right here. Wow, friends, we've just discovered some a real hole in Bobby Chesney's education. I'm fixing to go get an Arnold Palmer, y'all. Um, all right, so I think we covered that one pretty well. I, I want to conclude with this crazy Danish court ruling. Yeah. Well, can I say, well, um, yeah. Can we t- can we t- speaking of the IC, though, yeah. can we talk about uh, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Trump's assault, Trump's latest assault on the intelligence community? Well, and so I know we have a long-running disagreement about whether Dan Coates should quit. And okay. I know, Dan I know this Coates is fr- should quit. No, he shouldn't. Yes, he, he should. He just proved why. the worldwide, So Trump is super mad and tweeting crazy stuff about the IC because the worldwide threat assessment— right. You know, first of all, it didn't say anything about the border being a threat. It lists a lot of threats. The border's <laughs> funny, not a threat. Funny that. And by the way, let me just flag right now. I guarantee you that if he, if Trump goes on to do a national emergency declaration yeah. and tries to invoke the military-specific authorities under that heading that require a claim that it's a national emergency requiring the use of the armed forces, yeah. um, whereas a normal president might get some deference, he's not. And the thing that will be exhibit A in trying to litigate that and show that, in fact, there is no emergency to the point the courts could actually second-guess it, how about the worldwide threat assessment? Yeah. But anyways, so, <laughs> but Co- so Coates is sort of the point person for the intelligence community in, in taking this set of positions, including positions that are contrary to like everything Trump has said in foreign policy. And testifying in front of Congress about said positions. Right. In Iran, which especially. Is provoked, which is what provoked this latest right. Twitter and, diary. And I say, thank God for Dan Coates. And God bless him. Glad he's the DNI. Last thing I want him to do is leave. Stay right there so that we don't get a worldwide threat assessment and congressional testimony that are the opposite. Yeah, okay. So... I guess that's, I, I see the point. Um, I don't remember his name, but John Bolton's former chief of staff was on Fox News this morning um, saying that the president ought to fire Coates for insubordination. Um, <laughs> right? Even better. Is it sort of, I, I, I feel like that all makes my case. But, but here's the, I mean, maybe. Here's the problem, right? The problem is, it is 
once again, they're saying the quiet part out loud. How dare the intelligence community not provide the intelligence President Trump wants to hear? Right. No, I know. And isn't it good that they're being exposed in this way? Because how much worse a world would it be if the IC was lapdogging it? Yes, but at what point is the fact that the president is publicly ignoring you and indeed repudiating what you're saying and saying, I'd rather believe Putin than my own intelligence community, something that you that, that you have to object to, not just by continuing to do your job, but by publicly resign loudly resigning no I, uh, the loudly resigning wouldn't tell us anything wouldn't move the needle on his base it wouldn't achieve you don't anything. think madison's resignation achieved anything a little bit but really i mean what's different now we haven't pulled out of syria yet i don't think we we're gonna do that I, I don't think his resignation made that more likely it might have helped a little bit but what's the equivalent of that for Coates? what is the thing we wouldn't then do yeah. if Coates loudly resigned I think that here, the important thing, the thing that matters day by day, is the top official, someone we can trust, is not pressuring or in subtle ways so, to do appointments. You and oh, I, let, me, let me finish the sentence. Yeah. The top official who is not putting in people who he's appointing and, and otherwise filtering down into the IC, people who will cook the books. I think we get these recurring bits of evidence that that's not happening, and I'm really comforted by that. So I just want to say, I don't trust Dan Coates. I just trust him more than President Trump. Okay. All right. Um, you want to talk about the Danes? The Danes. So there's the great this, Danes. There was a great uh, Egil talk. That's the European. By the way, that's 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 the, your son up on my wall. What, oh, that that picture is yeah. that a, what that's, is what is your the, son? Your is son that? is the body of water uh, between Denmark and Sweden. Um, oh. That to the left, uh, to the left on that on that map is Copenhagen, and then that weird little thing in the middle is the bridge tunnel. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, which was which connected uh, um, Copenhagen and Malmo. And what's interesting about the bridge tunnel is this is this is either an exercise in brilliant engineering or terrible engineering. Um, the, the reason why half it's a tunnel is because if they built the bridge, it would interfere with flight operations at Copenhagen International Airport. Oh, interesting. No, that <laughs> so, sounds brilliant. So they well, yes. Why build a bridge when we can build a bridge tunnel at twice the cost? Well, to, so as not to interfere with well, flight indeed, operations. Indeed. Uh, okay, so uh, there was. This goes back to an operation in Basra, uh, near Basra, in 2004. Iraqi forces, British forces, and Danish forces um, go on an operation that's now known as uh, Operation, I believe, Green Desert, right? So Green Desert. They go in there. The thing is, uh, there are th some 350 Danish soldiers on the op. They do not have any role in capturing, let alone subsequently detaining, let alone interrogating any of the uh, the locals who were then swept up, uh, and nor do the British, I think, but I could be wrong. That's neither here nor there. The point is, there's a there's a big operation. They they sweep through an area. A bunch of guys are detained, and then there's uh, Iraqi custody of the Iraqi prisoners, and there are credible allegations of abuse rising to the level of torture, torture, but certainly including uh, ill treatment. Right? Uh, there's now a suit pending in a in a Danish court alleging Danish responsibility for those abuses under both the European Convention on Human Rights and, more directly, under Danish domestic law. And the Danish High Court, uh, the High Court for the Eastern Division in the Green Desert case, has issued a ruling saying, yep, uh, the Ministry of Defense, the, the MOD, is responsible for this, which is, I think, a pretty extraordinary ruling. The, the rationale, it's, it's based on an interpretation of the Danish domestic law which is being construed here. It's all in Danish, so I have to rely on the report that uh, Thomas Obel Hansen and Fiona Nelson did for uh, Egil Talk, their blog. Egil Talk is the European Journal of International Law, y'all. They call their blog Egil Talk. Um, follow it. So they say in their English report on this that uh, 
they, they hint that there's not a lot of exposition as to why exactly Danish domestic law would apply extraterritorially in, in this way. And they hint that on appeal, that might be a major issue. But for now, it's the, the liability provisions construed as uh, extraterritorial. And the theory of the case, it's, it's, um, it's a lot like the McCann decision from the European Court of Human Rights. And the idea is, look, there was a lot of advanced planning. The senior, it's sort of the liability is lodged at that planning and operational decision-making stage where the argument is the Dane, Danish military command should have known that, look, there will be detainees based on past performance. We can pretty much be sure they'll be abused. And even though you've consciously designed your operations so as to leave any detention operations in their hands where you don't touch it, indeed done precisely in order to avoid legal liability for what might then happen, the court says, yeah, that actually shows that you were trying to avoid the problems. You were conscious of what the problems might be, and you set things up in a way that guaranteed they'd be in Iraqi custody, where indeed then there were problems. So you're liable. You owe money judgment for this. Um, what's really striking, of course, is what the implications are, the disincentive this creates for having any role in these military operations. So here is an English translation of the, um, the Minister of Defense, the Danish Minister of Defense, said, quote, or at least translated, uh, when Denmark employs armed forces abroad, this involves countries characterized by war and conflict, such as Iraq, Afghanistan, and Mali. Such countries almost always have poor human rights records. In some ways, the judgment establishes standards that it is not practically possible to adhere to. This could mean that Denmark cannot contribute to improving security and hence human rights in conflict-afflicted countries, which will not benefit anyone. And I got to say, I agree. At a certain point, you keep attaching liability for for any level of involvement militarily in these countries where the, where the host state is engaging in abusive activities, you may create a situation that net-net over time is worse off from human rights. Uh, it certainly creates a disincentive for these countries like the Danes uh, to be able to participate in these operations. And of course, the United States is left holding ever more of the bag in that case. Interesting. Yeah, we'll see what happens next. It's almost like other countries' courts take a more... Um, uh, aggressive view of the role of international law in constraining these kinds of operations. That they do, but it, they're not making a great case for it here. Um, all right, so enough serious talk. Speaking of not making a great case for anything. Well, how about the Super Bowl? Which, I don't know, is it even really the Super Bowl with the Saints not in it? <sighs> you know, I, I am sorry, Saints fans. It was a blown call. As we talked about last time, the Giants were similarly victimized. I did not spend the rest of the playoffs saying, these playoffs are illegitimate. I wonder. Just I didn't. <laughs> Check the tape. <laughs> All right. So uh, who's going to win? Predictions real quick. I mean, oh, I'm rooting for the Rams, but who in their right mind bets against Tom Brady in a Super Bowl? I mean, I realize, yeah. the most, I realize that, that, that the most recent example is to the contrary, but... Yeah, it's it is it's really hard to go against Brady, but I'm going with the Rams here, and, and there's a particular reason. I'm I'm calling uh, Todd Gurley for MVP. He has been getting blasted for disappearing. People saying pretty, people saying nasty things, saying that uh, he he just disappeared in the NFC Championship. Looked, people saying he looked scared or the the stage was too big for him, got swallowed by the stage. I don't buy it. I don't know what was afoot with him. Maybe something was nagging at him. But when something like that happens to a player of his caliber, um, there's only one thing to do, and that's to come out and, and go into beast mode. So I think that we're going to see the Todd Gurley show, and I'm calling the Rams 34-31 over the Patriots. Whoa, Bobby Chesney. All right, what do you think? What's yours? Uh, Patriots 35, Rams 24. MVP Tom Brady? MV um, M no, MVP James White. 
Okay, interesting. James White. Okay. I think I think the I think that the you know in in, in Belichick, I'm just gonna you know I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take your heart out and stomp on it mode. Um, he's gonna devise a game plan where the Patriots have over 40 minutes in time of possession, where they keep Jared Goff off the field, and where they just like find ways to run the ball right down the Rams' throats. If it goes that way, I'm predicting Sonny Michelle, who's been more healthy lately, will be the big beneficiary there. Either way, I can't help but note, uh, you know, big Georgia running backs on both sides of that game. Good for Georgia. They had a rough Sugar Bowl, so they deserve a, uh, oh, they deserve the Super Bowl. Woohoo! <laughs> Look at you just twisting that nice Sugar room. Bowl in New Orleans, too. Interesting. Um, so that makes me think about something. Speaking of Georgia. All roads, all roads lead to New Orleans, or at least I-10 does. Quick digression. You want to say anything about the upcoming symposium? Because, of course, uh, one famous Georgian is Sally Yates. Indeed. And at the symposium, I'll be interviewing her about stuff. So next next Thursday and Friday, we are hosting, and by we, I mean uh, the Texas Law Review in conjunction with the National uh, American Constitution Society, hosting what I think should be a really interesting and timely symposium um, on reclaiming and restoring constitutional norms. Um, And, you know, this is not just meant to be like a Trump bash fest. It's actually a, a sort of more broad-based structural look at some of the, you know, constitutional norms that we've seen eroded in recent years in all three branches, um, and which ones are sort of in need of restoration and how might they be restored? I mean, is there, are there legislative proposals we should be thinking about? Are there, you know, behavioral norms that we should be thinking about replacing? So we've got five different panels featuring really a pretty remarkable cast of folks. Apparently, Austin in February is is quite popular. <laughs> There's a weather arbitrage we're exploiting there. Um, it, it, I, I can guarantee that the wind chill in Austin next Thursday and Friday will not be 50 below. Is it, so it's next I'm going to go, while you're talking, I'm going to look up the 10-day forecast. <laughs> um, February 7th and 8th. Um, I, this, I do, this does mean I get to say my favorite joke. One night in college, it's not my favorite joke, but one night in college, the windshield was minus 40. Um, and I was going around like, my, is it minus 40 Celsius or minus 40 Fahrenheit? It doesn't matter. It's the same. Yeah. My, minus 40 <laughs> the is the match point. point. So it's yeah. the match point. Um, we've had some places in America that reach that. So it's going to be a little chilly according to this. They not, don't really not know. Not minus 40. No, no, no. It's going to be like, you know, Austin chilly. It's going to be like 52. It's sunny. 52? <laughs> oh, no. What will we do? I mean, I dare say. I'll have like, to wear a coat. I mean, the, the, so, so the highlight to me of the conference is the two keynotes. So Thursday night, uh, former active attorney general Sally Yates is going to be in conversation with some guy named Bobby Chesney. Yeah, that, that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to um, that. At Griselda's. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's, what will be nice about that is um, it's actually like a partly outdoor space. So if the weather's decent yeah. with some heat lamps. Yeah. Griselda's is good stuff. We'll drink some margaritas. And let me just note, and this will come out in that conversation, yeah. obviously there's a lot to talk about with her moment of greatest national fame and, and current issues. But, uh, you know, she's, she's done, when she was a U.S. attorney for Northern District of Georgia, uh, which is why I thought about all this, I mean, she did a lot of stuff like the Eric Rudolph case. There's a lot of domestic terrorism stuff that her office and she handled. So it's going to be neat to talk to her about some of those issues as well. Yeah. Uh, and then Friday at lunch, the other keynote is uh, me in conversation with former White House counsel and Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez. I see what you did there. You got a little kind of <laughs> mirror imaging going on there. What, what, what do you mean? Are you saying it's on purpose? Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be great having Alberto Gonzalez here. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun, and you've assembled a, there's a ton of people. I won't try to name all, but you've assembled, or any of them, you've assembled a great, uh, there's a lot of diversity ideologically in this event. I think it's height-wise. To, to understand, there's a lot of height diversity. We, uh, you mentioned a moment ago that you know there's a, there are claims about erosion across all the branches, and I think it's fair to just remind ourselves that history shows really clearly, you don't have to be a classicist to know this, but it helps. Um, you, ideological orientation is not a firm predictor uh, or the only 
relevant consideration as to where people, when trying to use government power, are going to try to erode the restraints. That's right. right. Everybody plays that game. And, and, right. and, and, and our game as lawyers is to, is to police against that. Right. Ambition must be ways. made to counteract ambition. That's a clever idea. Somebody should write that up. Hmm. Maybe like in, in the 47th of a series of essays. Sounds like too much. Yeah. 47th episode of a podcast. Ah. Oh, you know, that's fun. Has anyone, I'm sure someone's done this. Has anyone done a, uh, a dramatic reading pay- of the Federalist? Well, no, I'm sure that's been done, or somebody should set up a tweet bot <laughs> to do it line by line the way that the <laughs> Hamilton one did. No, let's, I wonder if anyone, someone, if you know of this, tell us, is there a good sort of podcast series that's just really good quality deep dives into one by one mm-hmm. every one of the Federalist papers? You know who'd be good at that? Sandy, Sandy Levinson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be really good. All right, Sandy can have his uh, show. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I see, I'm, <laughs> we worry about length on our podcast. Hey, hey, what? Maybe that could be the halftime show at the Super Bowl instead of Maroon Five. Sandy Levinson reading from the Federalist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know how they do it at the Super Bowl halftime yes. shows to lead into that critique. Yes. They'll have different artists, and they'll kind of be like, you know. Uh, you know, Adam Levine's up there. He's rocking out with Maroon 5. And then at a certain point in the song, they kind of switches over to another stage. And there's Sandy reading from the Federalist Papers. <laughs> How great would that be? That would be amazing. That would be amazing. Um, but speaking of live performances, yeah, you want to say a word about halftime shows and live musicals? Yeah. So, okay. First of all, I'm super not a fan of the genre of the Super Bowl halftime show. Indeed. I can't stand it. I I don't mind the music, and, I, and generally speaking, they get artists that are, you know, they always make are at great pains to get good current artists, and that's all fine. Travis Scott and Rune 5, that's all awesome. Um, I can't stand the fake crowds of glow-in-the-dark, glow stick wearing, you know, I don't even know who, where they get these people, but they sit there. NFL employees. Yeah, I mean, come on, y'all. Don't, don't, I think it's, I realize maybe it looks weird if it's empty. But still, it's yeah. just so awkward to watch. Now, this gets to this question about this trend of live musicals, yes. right? Yes. So, Although, so, one thing yeah, about that book. Yeah. But I will say, I mean, so in my view, the greatest ever rendition of the national anthem was uh, uh, Super Bowl XXV in uh, Houston. Oh, yeah. But, of course, the controversy surrounding that is um, that there's a widespread view out there that that wasn't live. Um, that she was lip syncing to a recording. Interesting. You know, there, there's so much artificiality to the Super Bowl halftime show. Um, wouldn't shock you that was the same. No, that wouldn't surprise me so at all. So speaking of not being sure if something is live or not, <laughs> said rent, rent. Rent the other night. Rent, what? rent the, the rent the not quite live musical. All right, so get it. A major, major lead actor. Breaks, breaks his ankle. Yeah, and so he can't go. <laughs> They run the rerun of the dress rehearsals so they could still have him instead of rolling out the understudy. There wasn't an understudy. Why not? Well, that's the question. Okay, that that to me that's poor disaster planning. That's almost inexcusable. Well, so so was that just cheapness? They didn't want to pay for what it would take to have oh, somebody. I can't for imagine a, that's true for a one-off. Well, then why not do it? I don't know. Um, I, I, I suspect they will from now on. Um, mm. So this is the latest in a run of you know live live on air versions of of mm. musicals. I am generally not averse to the idea insofar as what you're doing is bringing into a far greater number of homes um, performances that are not necessarily accessible to folks who either can't afford to, well, folks who, who, who both can't afford to and or don't live close to, yeah. um, you yeah. know, New York or other places yeah, where these productions good, are staged. Good quality. I'm completely on board. I, I love a good musical, as yeah. I'm sure people listen to the show and, have and, noticed. And in, in defense of Rent, the Not Quite Live musical, um, the mu- they pulled far fewer. They they, tone, they they sugared it up a lot less than the movie did. I mean, yeah. I, I I think what the movie did to the sort of 
story of the musical is indefensible insofar yeah. as like diluting some of the really harsh realities of it. They bowlerized it. Yes, but indeed. You like? Yeah. Um, so I'm down with that. I actually didn't see the the, the liveish uh, thing they did the other day, uh, but I did recently see, and I think we talked about on the show uh, the Jesus Christ Superstar mm. rendition, which I thought was really fun to watch. Uh, my family loved it. We all had a good time with that. So I want them to keep doing this. Um, I think the the move towards having live studio audience makes it much more makes it feel much more like it, what what it feels like to actually be in the theater. Indeed, which yeah. is cool. Yeah. Um, and and more so, I, I will say, with all respect to to Hamilton, Rent in Rent, the audience is more in like physically invested in the production um, yeah. than Hamilton is, and I think that really came through in in the in the musical. That's interesting. That said. I mean, you gotta have an understudy because you got to. so Karen and I. Um, this is how this happened. Karen and I started watching a little bit into a little a little ways into it on Sunday night, um, and we started singing along. That's what we do. We're like, if we wake our kids, whatever. Um, <laughs> and then and then we got on Twitter because we were like, this feels not polished. Right, like, like they're you not know, trying all that hard not, to be polished. Right, like what's good? This feels like rough on the edges in ways that, that like Greece the musical wasn't. And then we got to yeah. it's like, oh, this is the dress rehearsal. That's why. <laughs> Wait, so uh, two questions. One, uh, what should be the next one? And and should it be? I mean, Hamilton Live would be like Hamilton Live would be TV. stunning. Um, Lin Manuel Miranda, I'm sure you listen to the podcast, dude. <laughs> Do, Hamilton Live. Do the Hamilton Live. And, of course, find roles for Steve and I to be in that. I want the Jimmy Fallon treatment where he got to be in there a little well, bit. Well, so, so you know there's exactly one role for a white man in all of Hamilton. Okay. King George III. Oh, you, you'd be great at that. I can't sing. But here's the thing. So, I don't know. You, you've, sunk, you've not let that stop well, you on that, this it's show. It's never stopped me before. So um, I, have a, I have a very good friend. Um, the, uh, I could do it. I have a very good friend. I'm, I'm not going there. I have a very <laughs> good friend who actually is a Broadway actor. Um, his name is Andrew Kober. Um, hi, Andrew. You don't listen to this podcast either. Um, and I have thought for and, and Andrew is often the sort of the 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 male who has like the comp the the funny but serious role, right? Okay. Like he's you know he can sing. Um, he's got a great affect. Like he's got this sort of sardonic wit. I mean, he's he's irreverent in exactly the way that you want you know King George the Third to be irreverent. Oh, that's great. I've always thought King George the Third. I've always thought like the crowning achievement of his career would be oh, to get to King play George. King George the Third on Hamilton. And apparently Andrew tells me it is the most sought after part in the history of Broadway. Well, it's high leverage because it's just a little bit of stuff. It's like eleven. So right, great. It's eleven minutes of stage time. And it's just you. And it's just you. Yeah. Right. And you got to be funny. Right. And you yeah. got, right. And and and, and you get and, to come out. And everybody's like, "Yeah, King George!" And everybody wants this role because it's eleven minutes of stage time. Right. Um, Andrew was. Um, he was just in School of Rock. Um, until it closed. Until oh, cool. it closed. Um, before that, he was in Les Mis, which I thought was who, cool. Who did he play? Yeah. Um, so he played. A, I mean, he was not. He wasn't in the ensemble. Yeah. He was like one of the sort of one of the in between guys. characters. Okay. Um, which meant he had twenty-one wardrobe changes. Oof. Right. He was on stage yeah. for like two and a half hours. And he's constantly, right? Eleven minutes, Ouch. three songs. It's the so apparently King George the Third is like the high, the, the like everybody wants to be King George. Oh, but yeah. Lynn, if you're listening, Andrew Kober, King George the Third, make it happen. Awesome. Hook us up, buddy. Um, all right, so maybe that'll be the, from your lips to God's ears on Hamilton being Seriously. a live show. What, what else would be the good? So um, what, what else should be the Super Bowl halftime show, which should become a live musical to combine these things? Uh, the Federalist Papers. That, <laughs> 
<laughs> Federalist Papers, the musical. <laughs> Ouch. So I was actually in Fed Court the other day. I was doing the story I, of Marbury versus I mean, Madison. we do have that, right? I mean, there's, there is the song that, you know, talks about, there are lines in Hamilton about that. Yeah, yeah um, uh, nonstop, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, there's about a one-minute riff in nonstop about the Federalist Papers. So we do have, a, you know, the entree is there. Hamilton wrote <laughs> the other 51. Yeah. <laughs> so what else would be good? As the, what about Bring It On the Musical as the Super Bowl halftime live musical? Too long. Well, just you know, you only just do select scenes. It's yeah. like the it's like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade or Christmas Parade. So I want it to be a spectacle. I mean, I want. How about like um, Chicago? Um, oh, that'd be good, right? Okay. Or um, what else would be a spectacle? Um, well, I saw I saw a waitress here in Austin, yeah. Broadway and Broadway. You know, on the road is waitress is waitress canonical enough? Like, do enough people know waitress? No. So I I've been asking lots of people. So I saw this. Have you seen it? And a lot of people seen the movie. Yes. A lot of people know the music. I think you knew the music. Sarah Bareilles. Uh, she's Sarah the bomb. Bareilles, uh, the music's really good. A little mini review here. The music's great. Story's very entertaining. There's some pretty good moments. Um, I actually think there's some problematic issues with the plot in terms of, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff about uh, marriage, about uh, infidelity, about pregnancy and parenthood and all the rest. But there's this sort of glaring, in my opinion, problem about one particular character having an affair that's sort of, it's sort of glamorized. And at one point, you finally get to learn something about the spouse and you, you just would assume that the writers would ensure that there'd be some element of, well, yeah, that person does seem a little problematic. And it, to avoid a sense of, wow, your glamorized affair is really victimizing your spouse. But they don't do that. They're, they're as near as the, the play represents uh, or the musical represents, the spouse is looks pretty fabulous and there's nothing wrong and there's no reason for this to be happening. And wow, what a horrible victimization of this person. So they really don't want to glamorize even, that. Yeah, exactly. I don't understand what was going Although on Although just there. to tie threads together, um, so j- – uh, is it Jenna? Jenna is, is that Je- the Jenna? Um, so the original Jenna on Broadway was Jesse Muller, um, who is good friends with Andrew Cober. Ah, See? perfect. So I've got you know all Seamless roads lead well. to all, all, all roads lead to Andrew Cober. <laughs> that could also be a podcast title, but that would really confuse people. All right, <laughs> especially Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> maybe get him to listen. I, I maybe. All right, he works for a living. Yes. <laughs> all right. Um, listen, if you are somewhere where it's cold, stay warm, stay inside. If you have to go out. Cover everything. Um, <laughs> if you're somewhere else where it's where it's where it's not that cold, hey, enjoy Texas and Florida and California. Um, and if you're in the uh, if you're in the uh, University of Maryland area, we've got a oh, symposium oh. on deepfakes Friday. Uh, Danielle Citron, my my at the um, law school. I think it's so a law ba- school, Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not College Park. I, I don't know. You have to get, go look it up. It's the deepfake symposium. Okay, Look, so I didn't come here everybody, to... this is the difference between me and Bobby Chesney. Bobby is speaking at a symposium on Friday and doesn't know where it is. I know I'm flying into Thurgood Marshall BWI. That's not that's that. Yes, and if you turn right, you go to Baltimore. <laughs> I'm going to left, Danielle's to to house, Park. and she will tell me what to do. <laughs> it's this is how our co-authoring relationship works. But this is also you got. We started the episode by talking about how you and I are wearing the same clothes, right? When we travel together, it's hilarious because you and I couldn't be more different. <laughs> In our travel sensibilities on, and what, what is your travel garb for airports? Um, well, first of all, are you I, one of these comfort on the plane guys? Absolutely. So tell me, what is your airport travel garb? If I'm not going, this anywhere is some world class frivolity now. If, if I'm not going to a meeting or to any professional setting directly from the airport, um, and it's like cold, I'm in a sweatshirt and Lululemon yoga pants. Okay, so you are one of those comfortable on the airplane guys. Why the hell wouldn't you? be? It's just one more thing to pack. So I, when I'm you don't pack it, you wear it. 
Yeah, yeah, but you can't use it when you get there. So if I have right, to if, go, I, if I wear nice clothes, they get all crumpled when I get there. Well, at least, but at least you frumpy. get the, you got the suit there. You can you can deal with it to to get it clean. This, by the way, this is my favorite ever line from The West Wing. What's right, that? where Sam is talking to the Russian uh, uh, advanced people for the big summit with President Shigorin, and Sam says "frumpy," and and the guy says, "I don't know what frumpy means, but onomatopoetically, uh, it makes sense." And Sam's <laughs> like, "You don't know frumpy, but you know onomatopoeia." <laughs> <laughs> hey, just real quick, I finally got the address. Yeah, of course, it's Maryland Carry Law Baltimore. Uh, in Baltimore. Absolutely, this is uh, ten o'clock to four thirty this Friday. The con- the the conference is Truth Decay. Deep fakes and the implications for privacy, national security, and democracy, and it's it's such a great lineup. That accepting me, there's all <laughs> kinds of other people who are awesome. Can't wait to see them. Uh, Woody Hartog, Marianne Franks, Ari Waldman, Jessica Silby, uh, David Gray, Stacey Dogan, Olivier, uh, Sylvain, Kate Klonick, Tom uh, Tom Kadri, uh, Ben Wittes, Quinta Jurassic, Alan Rosenstein. We got a lawfareish panel going there. That's going to be awesome. All right, so if you're in if you're in the Baltimore area or you want to drive up from DC, check it out. Exactly. I, now I should go prepare. Seriously, and and like figure out where you're going when you land at PWI. <laughs> going to by Danielle's the way, house. by the way, this is this is my my, my whole thing. When 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 I call, I'm I'm obsessed about calling DCA National Airport. Yeah. People say, oh, you mean Ronald Reagan Airport? And I say, <laughs> I'll call it Ronald Reagan Airport as soon as you call BWI Thurgood Marshall Airport. And I'll call it Town Lake, not Lady Bird Lake, although that's growing on me. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. All right. He is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. Seriously, stay safe out there. Adios.